Welcome back. I'm Rab Houston, and I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews. You're listening to my series of podcasts on the history of psychiatry in Britain between the Renaissance and the present day. And I'm on the fourth block or section of those podcasts. And that section is designed to answer the question, how have therapies for mental disorders changed over the centuries? This is the third of the podcasts in that block and it takes us into the 20th century. It's entitled Surgery and Early Drug Treatments. The moral therapy was definitely an important departure but treatments common in early modern times lingered until much more recently, more recently than we might imagine. For example, the writer Virginia Woolf spent time in a Twickenham rest home for women with what were termed nervous disorders during the early 1910s. The nervous tag was important for social classes who wanted to avoid the stigma of being certified and the trauma of confinement in a true lunatic asylum. While there, Virginia Woolf was denied writing materials, kept in a dark room and given what was described as a low diet of cold rice pudding. Yuck! Not surprisingly, she described her experience as penalising despair, and the regime of sensory deprivation used on her would have been recognisable a century before. What this tells me is that the assumptions, the beliefs and the values of day-to-day psychiatry were still changing only very slowly, even in the early 20th century. Virginia Woolf was ill in what some describe as the golden age of psychodynamic therapy. Uh, That's uh, Freud's psychodynamic therapy on the private practitioner's couch. The truth of the matter is that, in Britain at least, psychiatrists in asylums, which which is where most treatment occurred, were actually deeply pessimistic about psychoanalytic cures. They included the famous British psychiatrist Henry Maudsley, who gave his name to the London Mental Hospital, opened in 1915. Instead, most British clinicians reached out for physical or scientific solutions. And that explains why, I think, in the second quarter of the 20th century, important figures like William Sargent at St Thomas's Hospital in London were eager to try therapies which look barbaric in hindsight and which attracted criticism even in their own day. Now, some of the things you're going to hear about are not terribly pleasant. Um, They did happen. there is no way around this. I need to explain them if we need to under- because we need to understand them 
to understand the development of psychiatry as a discipline. Now these physical or surgical treatments of the mid-20th century covered quite a broad spectrum. One is inducing a brief coma by using insulin or barbiturates. Another bringing on epileptic, epileptic seizures. A third is electroconvulsive therapy, usually just called ECT. Now in theory, these interventions relaxed or emptied the mind, allowing a so-called fresh start for the patient on regaining consciousness. It would seem that the first two treatments can produce benign outcomes for some schizophrenics. The last, still in use, seems to alleviate serious depression. All, and this is important, of potentially harmful side effects. In its early years, for example, ECT was administered unmodified, in other words, without an anaesthetic or muscle relaxant. The image for this week's podcast is an ECT machine made in 1954. Psychosurgery was also fashionable for a time. Most notoriously, transorbital lobotomy, or what's also known as prefrontal leucotomy. Sorry to stumble over that. Now, psychosurgery was most popular in the United States. Um, some British cl- clinici- clinicians tried it. The William Sargent at St. Thomas's I just mentioned was one of those. Uh, I've included uh, an image of lobotomy instruments from around 1950 there for a podcast on anti-psychiatry that I'll do a few weeks from now. Now, psychosurgery too worked in a sense. Basically, what it did was remove sections of the brain and removing certain sections of the brain reduced agitation. The problem was it left patients with changed personalities and reduced self-control. That such therapies could sometimes be effective in no way, in my opinion, excuses their inappropriate use and potentially dangerous side effects. In any case, their therapeutic efficacy was never wholly proven. What's more, even in the mid-20th century when they were at their height, their use offended developing sensibilities about aggressive or invasive therapies. And that explains why surgical and other aggressive physical interventions were already fading even before the advent of new drugs in the mid-1950s. Now the legacy of that reaction of changing sensibilities is still with us. In 2016, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, banned the practice of administering ECT to patients with mental problems who refused to consent to the treatment. The uh, College of Psychiatrists of Ireland nevertheless continues to endorse its use in some cases, as do many British clinicians. Oh, I nearly forgot to mention that the inventor of prefrontal leucotomy, 
a chap called Egas Monitz, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1949, partly on the back of that. So much for surgery. It's uh, not entirely an edifying history. The middle decades of the 20th century saw dramatic breakthroughs in pharmacology, which transformed the treatment of a wide spectrum of conditions. This transformed the long-standing use of chemicals to help sufferers from mental problems. The first mid-20th century breakthrough came from what might seem, from the standpoint of the history of psychiatry, an unusual angle, and that's antibiotics in the 1940s. Now the reason why antibiotics were so important was that the largest single category of Victorian and Edwardian psychiatric patients in asylums were sufferers from a somatic rather than a psychogenic illness. For example, men who had a neurosyphilitic disorder known as general paresis or sometimes also known as general paralysis of the insane made up fully one-fifth of British asylum admissions around 1900. Now, an Austrian, uh, Julius von Wagner Dureg, incidentally the first psychiatrist to receive a Nobel Prize in 1927, successfully treated this condition using a counter-infection by malaria. He tried, unsuccessfully, to extend this to other mental ailments using the long-established, if, as we now know, erroneous theory that fever and madness cannot coexist. In fact, antibiotics like penicillin were much better and much easier and more reliable for general paresis because they dealt with the spirochet bacteria which causes syphilis. Antibiotics are part of a mid-20th century pharmacological revolution. Before this, pharmaceutical products which produced an identifiable response in cases of mental ailment were usually general sedatives. In other words, they pacified patients rather than alleviating their specific symptoms. Sedatives offered a kind of chemical restraint, though physical restraint, for example by straitjacket, was also necessary on some occasions. It still is today. Opium derivatives are probably the best-known example of a general sedative. Um, they were freely available from apothecaries until the introduction of drug prescriptions by the Pharmacy Act of 1868. Another widely used sedative is chloral hydrate, which was first used in psychiatry the year after, in 1869. A third is camphor, uh, known to the ancient Greeks, Galen knew about camphor, and it's still used by doctors nowadays as an antispasmodic, an anaesthetic, a sedative, and a pacifier of anxiety. It's especially useful for dyspepsia, 
um, because many mental abnormalities in the past were viewed somatically, it was used extensively until the early 20th century. I guess you've probably noticed that I judged all these compounds against modern standards of efficacy. Indeed, it's common to read in most history of psychiatry textbooks that the medicines used, and many of the therapies used, were, I quote, useless. But there is another way to look at medical interventions right up to the mid-20th century. All involved the patient in his or her own cure, and all treated each individual as unique. Medicine was indeed holistic. This created, I think, an important psychological prop, which may have helped people to feel better and to cope more effectively with the conditions they had. This effect is well known to modern clinicians, and there is every reason for believing it was just as important in the past, when patients' ideas of what constituted remedy or cure were different from modern-day ones. Nowadays, one definition of cure is to be found on the website of the Scottish Recovery Network, an autonomous non-profit body founded in 2004. They write, Recovery means being able to live a good life as de defined by the person with or without symptoms. In the past, the crucial difference in definition, well, the crucial differences in definition were first that the opinion of family and friends was as important as the sufferers, and second that the efficacy of medical treatments was perceived to depend less on any universal standard than on how well they interacted with individual, individual physiology and psychology. I think it's also likely that sufferers found it easier in the past to accept that their condition could only be managed rather than truly cured. I think we expect much more from modern medicine than people did in the past. Yet there were developed during the third quarter of the 20th century a wide range of drugs to help sufferers from mental illness drugs whose standard of clinical efficacy was much more uniform and specific and thus closer to what we now regard as normal in medicine. Together, these drugs form part of a pharmaco pharmacological revolution which I'll talk about next time. Do please join me. <laughs>